I wasn't anticipating that last song, and yet I want to thank Tony and, and uh, Courtney and the band for being sensitive to the Lord to choose the right songs for the right season and the right times in uh, this church and even in my life. You know, I uh, joined uh, Dave as he kind of rabbited down here to bow before the altar and Tim and, and Stephen and myself, and uh, I was just bowing, and I was thinking, what I'm doing is I'm simply practicing the first 10,000 years I'm in Jesus' presence. You know, to be in His presence, to see those feet, to see those hands, to see where that crown cut into Him. It's just the beginning, friends of all that He has really done on our behalf, just appreciating who He is and what He has done. So, I, I, again, I just want to thank uh, the Lord for His timing and you guys for your sensitivity as, as to what He is doing. You know, we've been talking about family. We've been talking about real community. And I guess in a very real way, we should sense the liberty to be open, to be transparent, not in a showy, fake, hey, look, he went forward, I better go forward kind of way. Do you know what I'm saying? There should be the liberty upon your heart in life to be responsive to what the Spirit of God is saying to you at any time and not feel like, oh, they're watching or, oh, what are they going to think? Can I, can I just say to you, the Lord is watching. What does He think? That's really what matters. And so our hearts should be connected into who He is and what He is doing. Well, today we are going to finish up our series that we've called Real Community, and it's really about uh, the church being a place to belong. And you know, I don't know if there's ever been a time where it's more necessary in America for us to have this thing called the extended faith family called the church. You know, I asked Dennis this past week, I said, hey Dennis, how do you sense the, the attitude or, or the the feeling of the church these days, and he says, I, I feel a lot of apprehension in people's lives. There's a whole lot of people who are anxious today, and, and he was saying, I don't know, it's because of the natural disasters, or the fires, or the threat of war, or just the chaos, or the racism, or he says, it seems like just everything is being shaken right now. And people are feeling a little unstable and anxious about what's going on today. Maybe that's you. If it is, I'm glad you're here. Because this is where we get centered. And this is where we find assistance and help and encouragement. I love what the writer of Hebrews encouraged the people of God with. He said this in Hebrews 10 verse 23. Listen, he said, let us, let us. Hold fast the confession of our hope, and that hope's in Jesus Christ. And we should do it without wavering. You know, oh my gosh, what's going on? Help, help, what, what's happening? For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider now how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another in all the more as you see the day. It's capital D. The day approaching. That day is when Christ himself will return. 
Now, I don't know when that day is. I will not give any prophecies, okay? I don't know when Jesus is returning. But Paul thought 2,000 years ago he was living in the last days. So if Paul thought 2,000 years ago he was living in the last days, this much I know, we are in the latter days, the end of the last days, even today. And Bible says that things will wax worse and worse and worse as that time approaches. And there's never been a time where we really need each other more than today. So I'm glad you're here today. I hope today as we walk through the truths found in the first church, Acts chapter 2, that perhaps your soul will be gripped afresh and anew with this thing called the grace of God. Have your Bibles, please. Join me in Acts chapter 2 this morning. Uh, we're going to walk our way through Acts 2. And uh, what I'm going to do as we kind of bring it to a culmination today, the focus will be on verses 46 and 47. That will finish this section in Acts chapter 2. But what I'd like to do is actually start in verse 38 and literally walk our way through this experience these people were having. Now again, what happened here in Acts chapter 2 is, is impossible for us to simply repeat because it was a unique time in a unique context that is not repeatable today. But what we can do is get our hearts and our minds around the experiences they were having that can inform us today as to how we too can experience this thing called real community. Real community. So I want to walk through the R, the E, the A, and we'll finish with the L of real community. And I'll wait till we get to the L before we kind of put a, an exclamation on this series. And in some ways, the exclamation's already happened. But this group of people in Acts chapter 2 were a redeemed people. The church is a group of redeemed people. The apostle Peter in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38 said this, Repent. Repent and be baptized. Now, he was speaking on the day of Pentecost to the pilgrims who had gathered in Jerusalem. Probably about 300,000 people were in the city of Jerusalem for this Jewish feast day. And he stood up and he said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What a beautiful thing that is. He said this, for the promise is for you, to the people of that day, and for your children, in other words, your descendants, and for all who are far off. He's talking to us. He's talking about us. We are far off, both in time and geography, as well as ethnicity, from that day. But the promise is for everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, Peter bore witness and he continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. And so those who received his word that day were baptized, and there were added about 3,000 souls to this thing called the beginning of the church. So Peter here is giving what we would call the altar call. He is giving a, a, a call to repentance to this group of people. Now, prior to this, Peter has been careful to explain to them exactly who Jesus Christ is and how he and the plan of God was God's redemption for their sins. So what Peter did before verse 38 is he preached to them the gospel. 
The gospel is good news. The Greek word euangelion literally means a, a great proclamation. And this is it. God does for us that which we cannot do for ourselves. And so, in a very real way, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the Holy Godhead, the Trinity, in eternity past, God the Father thought this plan of redemption. God the Son brought this plan of redemption. And God the Holy Spirit wrought this plan of redemption in our hearts. So this is all of God, not of us, all of the Trinity, not of you and me. And this is it. God, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, entered into humanity through the womb of the Virgin Mary. He was born in just the right time in God's plan, and then he went on to live an absolutely perfect, righteous, sinless life. He lived the life we were meant to live, and then he went on to die the death that you and I were meant to die. The soul that sins, it shall die. The wages of sin is death, and that's an eternal destruction under the wrath of God. Why? Because we failed to live a perfect life, thus we deserve an eternal judgment. But Jesus Christ was in our place. He took our place on the cross. There the Son of God received the wrath of God the Father. And God the Father judged him for our sin and killed him. So, he lived the life we were meant to live. He died the death we were meant to die. Peter proclaimed all of that prior to calling these people to repentance in verse 38. Now, repentance is is an interesting concept. I love the way a man by the name of J.D. Greer puts this. J.D. Greer is a pastor down in North Carolina, a good theologian, excellent pastor, great preacher. He said this. He said, being converted to Jesus is not a matter of learning to obey rules. And all God's people said, oh my gosh, if your goal of being right with God is checking the boxes, you're never going to be right with God. It just doesn't work that way. So being converted to Jesus is not a matter of learning to obey rules, but rather being converted to Jesus is to adore God such that we would gladly renounce everything we have to follow him. And that's what it means to repent. Repentance is to change your mind from your path, your way of life, and what you think it means to be right with God. Now, these were austere religious Jewish people. They kept the law. That's what they did. And they they were scrupulous right down to the nth degree of trying to keep the law to please God. And Peter said, that'll never do. You can be as good as you want, and it will never make you right with God. And so he said, but one came, Jesus, and he died for your sin that you might be right with God through his righteousness. So he said, repent, change your thinking and your way of life to Jesus and embrace him with your life. And this is exactly what those people did on that day. 3,000 people repented of their sins, put their faith in Jesus, and went on to evidence the repentance that they had by being baptized now under the lordship of Jesus Christ in their lives. So this is the beautiful thing that happened to those people. They understood for the very first time, it's not what I do that makes me right with God. It's what Jesus Christ has already done. And by simply letting go of my life and embracing him with my life, I get that gift given to me. So that day, 3,000 people 
embraced Jesus Christ with their life, and then they went on to evidence the reality of this transformation by being baptized. Baptism has often been called the first step of obedience in the journey of faith, and they did that that day. You know, I I guess uh, just as we move on from this to the next point, before we move on, I just want to say, what about you? What about you? I don't want to know if you've been baptized. That's all cool. A lot of different traditions baptize people. What I really want to know is this. Has the Holy Spirit called you to release your life, to embrace Jesus Christ with your life, and today he is Lord of your life? That's what I want to know. You see, that's what it means to be his. That's what it means to be born again. That's what it means to repent and believe. It is the letting go of our lives and embracing him with our lives. And then the reality of that repentance, a a true and living faith, is now one that goes on to adore Jesus Christ. And that is what brings us together as family. This is what it means to be brothers and sisters in the faith. So what about you? Have you come to that place in your life where it's not about you anymore? It's now him. It's now about him. Just keep that thought. We'll, we'll kind of bring it all to a crescendo towards the end. So they were a redeemed community, now living under the lordship of Jesus Christ and experiencing the power of broken sin. Christ paid the penalty for their sin, and now he's breaking the power of sin in actual everyday life. So we move on from the R to E. It was an exciting community. Because it goes on to say this, and they had now devoted themselves. The word devoted has the idea to be committed to something and persevere in it. And they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. And awe came on every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. So, so kind of contextually, this is what happened. These people were religious Jews. And as such, it was all about mitzvah, good deeds. It was all about keeping the law. It was all about everything I can do. And now Peter comes along and says, no, that'll never save you. Jesus alone can rescue you. And so they embrace Jesus, but they're like, what is this? What is happening to me? What is it that he did? I don't really understand this concept called grace. So that's why they brought them together. So they were brought together, and now they were learning that there was a radical new way to live life. It's no longer about me, but now it's learning to be Jesus-centered, grace-focused, others-loving, gospel-living. That's what it's meant to live now in Jesus. And so that's what they're doing with them here. They're helping them to get grounded in what happened to them. They're getting them grounded in Jesus and in grace and in love and in the gospel. How do I know that? Because that's what it says. They devoted themselves to what? The apostles. The apostles. What's the word? The apostles. Yes, yes. The apostles teaching. Thank you. I know you can read. I know you're with me. I know I'm not asking you anything too hard. Um, Yeah, the apostles teaching. Now, the apostles' teaching is the gospel. That's what the apostles' teaching was. It is this message of God's glorious grace found in the person of Jesus Christ. That's, all, that's what they taught him. It is the gospel. You know, I think in our minds, for many of us, when it comes to the gospel, we think that that's like the door you step through to begin this thing called the Christian life. And it is, 
But somehow you leave the door behind. That, you know, kind of the gospel is kind of that elementary principle that you believe in the beginning, but now you move on to bigger and deeper things. Friends, the gospel is the ABCs of the word of God. It is that part that you just kind of learn as you're beginning. But do hear me. It's not just the ABCs. The gospel is also the XYZ of the word of God. It is the beginning. It is the end of our life. So the gospel is not something you do once, as Tony was quick to say. You know, it's, it's like we come to the altar once and we think it's all done. That's just the beginning of the relationship. You're going to find yourself coming back to that place, the cross, over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. The same message that saves you is the same way you go on. So the gospel is this wonderful truth that the disciples, the apostles, were teaching them as to what happened to them. Again, uh, just using J.D. Greer and some thoughts he had. He said this concerning the gospel. In fact, Courtney actually used this on our, our Grace Connect this week. I didn't know she was going to do that. I already had it in my notes. So good job, Courtney. Again, another one of those crossover points. Didn't plan on it. It just happened. Uh, J.D. Greer said this. The gospel is not just the diving board off which we jump into the pool of Christianity. The gospel is the pool. It's everything. Ultimately, we are saved by grace. We go forward by grace. We will die and see his face by grace. It is all by the grace of God found in the person of Jesus Christ. You don't outgrow the gospel. Our goal is to grow up into the gospel of grace. So they were trying to help them understand what happened. And so the apostles' teaching was dedicated to understanding who Jesus is, what he had done, and who they are in him. So that's what the apostles' teaching was. Now he talks about the fellowship. Uh, the word fellowship there is this wonderful Greek word, and you're probably familiar with it. It's the word koinonia. Koinonia. It's a beautiful word. It just kind of rolls off the tongue. In fact, you can say it with me. Koinonia. One more time, koinonia. We should say that instead of, you know, what are you guys doing? Oh, we're koinonia-ing together. <laughs> yeah, it just sounds more cool than fellowshipping, you know. It's a, so, but we're, we're koinonia-ing together. And what that word means simply is this, and, and it can actually apply to other, other peoples. The word koinonia is simply a secular word in that day that referred to an association <clears throat> or a friendship based upon participation in and sharing around something. So today, you could in effect say that when the Kiwanians meet, they're fellowshipping. They're koinonia-ing. You could say that when the uh, VFW hall gathers, those people are fellowshipping. Because they're gathering together around a particular thing that they all have identity in. Well, when you bring it over into the Christian life, koinonia has the idea to being devoted to one another... In life-on-life life participation together in the gospel of Jesus Christ together for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me explain. <clears throat> it is the gospel that brings us into this beautiful thing called relationship with God. It makes us a son and daughter of God. It is the gospel of God's grace that saves us. Amen? 
And then when we gather together as the koinonia of God, this fellowship of God's people, what I want you to understand, it wasn't just that the gospel gave us the privilege of being put into this community, but the very purpose of this community is for the sake of the gospel. Let me show you what I mean. If you have your Bible, I want you to notice something very interesting. Very interesting. If you have it open to Acts chapter 2, do this. Oh, there's Acts chapter 1 right there. Look at Acts chapter 1. So if you have your Bible, flip over to Acts chapter 1. What I want you to see is that community, fellowship, <clears throat> is always to a purpose or a point. Can somebody grab me a cup of water or something? Somebody handy? Let's see. Thank you, Courtney. I'm kind of <clears throat> drying up. Okay. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. Here is Jesus just before he's about to ascend back into heaven. And he's gathered the believers together. And this is what he says. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Now he was predicting what happened on the day of Pentecost. And you will be my, what's the word? Oh. So the Holy Spirit is coming to give me new birth for the purpose of being a witness. Oh, and I'm supposed to be a witness in Jerusalem. That's where they were. And then into all Judea, Samaria, into the very ends of the earth. So when you get into Acts chapter 2, and they were having koinonia or fellowship together. Thank you, Courtney. Uh, what was actually happening is they were coming together because of the gospel for the sake of the gospel. It's always about the gospel. It's always about Jesus. It's always about God's grace. It just so happens that I have a little video clip right now. Good timing, because I need to drink some of this. But what I'd like you to hear is perhaps somebody who says it better than I do. His name is Francis Chan. Nope, Francis Chan. Come on, Francis. Francis Chan. There we go. If I just read the scriptures, I, I wouldn't even think so much about the gathering. You know, like, like my first thought wouldn't be, let's have a gathering. Out of the scriptures, I would think, I'm on a mission. Like, I, I love this God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and now I've got to go out and make disciples. That's what I would think. I, I, need, I need to go out there and just reach as many people as I can. I, I'm supposed to teach them to obey everything that God's command. That's what I would get out of Scripture. And then what would happen as I did that, what I believe would naturally happen is suddenly I would find those other people who were on that same mission because we'd be the weirdest people on earth, right? We, we, we would stick out. We'd be so different. And, and that pressure to always stay on that mission, everyone else would be beating me down. So I would actually need these brothers and sisters in my life and tell them, hey, don't let me slow down. And I won't let you slow down. We've got to stay on this mission together. You see, this is why I wasn't into fellowship before, because I didn't need any more friends. Okay, it wasn't like, oh, yeah, you know, let's just get another gathering so I have someone to talk to. Like, like I, I didn't need accountability groups so that I wouldn't sleep around or whatever it was. I can do that. I can do that on my own. Uh, like, not, not sleep or, you, you know what I mean. I, I can, like, you know, I don't need that to, to do American church. I don't need fellowship. But to stay on mission every day, I, I need people because I'm going to get distracted. There's so many things I would rather do than make disciples. 
And so I need people in my life to tell me this. That's what I would get out of scripture is I had to go out and start making disciples. And as I did that, I really believe that I would start gathering with other people doing the same thing. So the apostles were trying to explain, thank you, clear throat for me, I appreciate that. The apostles were trying to explain to them what happened to them. So they gave them the teaching concerning the gospel of God's grace. They explained to them that they had a fellowship, but the gospel that brings you into community of God's people is that the community of God's people are now to be about the gospel, if you will. It's not just community for the sake of community. Now, somebody has said this, if you go after community, you'll miss it every time. But if you go after mission, you'll get community along the way. That's what he's talking about. And so in a very real way, we are a missional community. We're here to love each other, encourage each other, and to welcome each other, and to help each other. But it's not just to that end. It is to the end of being witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And so that's what they were telling them. It's about the grace of God. It's about the grace of God. And then he talks about this thing called breaking of bread. Breaking of bread. Uh, Many people believe this is probably the bread in the cup, or in some traditions it's referred to as communion. Uh, But Jesus put it this way, this is my body which is broken for you. And this is the cup of the New Testament in my blood. And so Jesus gave this on on Passover to his disciples as an ongoing remembrance of what? The gospel. The gospel. Here is my life. The absolutely perfect righteous life that I lived that you couldn't. Now, here's the cup. This is my blood which was shed for you in your place as a substitutionary atonement to take care of your sins. So, he begin, they begin with the apostles' teaching to tell them about the gospel of God's grace found in, in Jesus. And then this idea of fellowship is we're on mission with the gospel for Jesus. And now the bread and the cup are about Jesus. Are you seeing a theme? Are you seeing what they're trying to tell them? It's all about Jesus. And then it says, and they were involved in prayers. And this is more like set times of prayer, kind of like a corporate time of prayer. And that would no doubt include confession, where people would go to one another and confess their sins to one another because I've offended you and you've offended me. And so we say before the Lord, forgive me. And we embrace each other and we go on. And so there'd be confession, there'd be adoration, there'd be supplication, there would be thanksgiving. These people were becoming a Jesus-centered, grace-focused, others-loving, gospel-living people. That's what grace does. That's what Jesus does when he touches and changes a life. The apostles were teaching them about God's glorious grace found in Jesus. Now, by way of application, what about you? What about you? Who is Jesus to you, by the way? That's a great question, don't you think? Right now, ask yourself that question. Who is Jesus to me? For too many people, Jesus is a religious figure. He's somebody who lived in the past. He's somebody that we read about in the Bible. He's some guy that's dead. But who is Jesus to you? Is he an ongoing living reality that radically transforms how you see life and how you live life? So, 
a couple of weeks ago when we were looking at this issue of exciting community, <clears throat> we looked at this idea of, of our lives. And so this, time life this timeline would include when you were born to the point where you would have met Jesus Christ. Now, I believe everyone at some point has some knowledge of when they met Christ. When you do meet him in repentance and faith, all of a sudden your life now goes on. But one of the things you're going to soon realize in this journey with Jesus is that there's kind of this growing gulf in your life as you read the scriptures and try to understand who he is. On the one hand, you discover that God is far more holy than I had any idea when I met Jesus. And his standard is so high, he calls us to perfection. And then on the other side of the equation, what I've discovered about myself as I walk with Jesus is that I'm far more sinful than I had any idea. Now, am I just talking to myself here? You see... If you meet Christ and you begin to journey with him, this will be a, a growing reality in your experience. And it becomes very challenging. And in the midst of this challenge, what, what we do is we say, hey, did you ever go to the cross and meet Jesus? And we say, yeah, I get a testimony. And we always look back to that day. We look back to that day. Yeah, I met Jesus. Okay. Okay, that's good. But what happens is this. Because I am sinful, I begin to have shame in my life. And what I do to deal with my shame is I begin to pretend and hide parts of my life because I know it's wrong. I know there's sin there. And what I do is I take this and I keep it over here. I, I, I'm, I get the face on and the mask on to everybody else. But God knows this is here and I know this is here. And I'm ashamed so I pretend. And then, because God is holy and I'm full of shame, that leaves me with all kinds of guilt before God. And I prayed a thousand times. And then the next thing I know, I start to perform before God. You know, God, I promise tomorrow that I'll go to church if you'll forgive me today. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> so wild oats all week and I'll go to church on Sunday. I'll, I'll, I'll be nice to this person. I'll put some money in the offering plate. Please, God, please get this guilt off me. And all the while, the same way we came to Jesus, the same grace that was poured out on us in this moment, and we felt such joy and such release and such cleansing, is the same thing that we're supposed to continually experience every single day. Because the repentance and faith is how I came in, and repentance and faith is how I go on. And repentance and faith deals with guilt and performance, shame and pretending. Because Jesus Christ is fully paid for it all. I don't need to bear any of it, because it has all been dealt with through Christ on the cross. I, I love what Timothy Keller says about this. Please listen, because this is so good. This, this is right where we live. He said this, the good news of God's justifying grace, that is when God declares us righteous when we meet Jesus, the good news of God's justifying grace means that while Christians are in themselves still sinful and sinning, and all God's people said, this is so true. You know, I don't, I'm not as openly actively sinning as I did before I met Jesus. But the same heart that was openly, actively sinning before I met Jesus, I still have. 
Depravity runs deep with me. How about you? You know, our culture scared to death. We just had two people do two things that are terribly awful, and they're now connecting the word depravity to them. One is uh, Harvey Weinstein, and all that he's done in abusing those women. His brother said he's depraved, as though, you know, he's really bad because he's depraved. And then this guy who, who did all of the shooting there in Las Vegas, they're saying that he was depraved. So we save that word for extremely bad things people do because most of us want to believe we're basically good, right? I'm basically a good guy, not according to the Bible. You see, in the Bible, the Bible says this, that the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who really even understands it? The same depraved things that those men did resides in the heart of every one of us. Any one of us could have done what they have done. Any one of us could. Because that depravity lurks in the depths of our being. The world is saying there must be a reason. And the Bible says, yeah, it's called depravity. We all got it. And so the reality is we are all depraved. And so he goes on to say this. Um, the good news of God's justifying grace means that while Christians are in themselves sinful and sinning, yet... In Christ, in God's sight, Christians are accepted and righteous. You could say that we are more wicked than we ever dare believe, but we are more loved and accepted in Jesus than we ever dared hope, all at the same time. Wow, really? I got a broken, sinful, wicked heart, and Jesus makes me absolutely perfectly loved and, 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 and righteous before the Father? Yeah, yeah. You see, it doesn't depend on you. It depends on him, not you. And he goes on to say this. When you get this idea of the amazing grace of God, it creates a radical new dynamic for personal growth. It means that the more you see your own flaws and sins, your pride, your, your greed, your, your selfishness, the more precious, electrifying, and amazing God's grace appears to you. And the more aware you are of God's grace and acceptance in Christ, the more able you are to drop your denials and your self-defenses and repent and find true transformation of character from sin. Wow. They were growing in their knowledge of these truths. That it's not about them, it's about God, it's about His grace, it's about Jesus and all that He's done for them. Therefore, there is no need for guilt or shame to perform or to pretend because Jesus Christ dealt with it all and therefore it is love and grace that changes your heart. And you know what? When you get this, it's... You know, it's exciting. It, it, it's... You know, it's exciting. Yeah, 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 it, it, it's really... You know, it's exciting. Yeah! When you get grace, it's... Exciting. <laughs> Tell your face it's exciting. <laughs> okay. So they had a redeemed community, an exciting community. Last week I looked at the fact that it is an authentic community. And all who believe were together and had all things in common. And he goes on to say this. And they were selling their possessions and their belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as they had need. In other words, the reality of their experience of God's grace was playing out in incredible ways. They were now actively choosing the needs of others over themselves. 
Friends, this is the definition of biblical love. This is what it means to love others. And they were freely and joyfully sacrificing their own well-being and future for the needs of others. And this is what Jesus does in us. This is what God's grace does in us. It changes us from sinfully focused, money-grubbing, selfish people. Amen? Look at your own heart. Tell me that's not true. Let me say that again just in case you didn't see the mirror I put up before you. Sinfully focused, money-grubbing, selfish people. I think that pretty well catches most of us. Into Jesus-centered, grace-focused, others-loving, gospel-living people. The grace of God changes us from the inside out and it transforms our hearts, making us more like Jesus. And so this is just the mere beginning of all that God designed for his people to experience in community. Not only is this idea of giving, but it's to be devoted to one another, to not judge one another, to accept one another, to care for one another, to serve one another, to bear one another's burdens, to be kind to one another, to forgive one another, to encourage one another, to stimulate one another to love and good works, to keep meeting together with one another, confessing our sins to one another, praying for one another. Ultimately, it is called love, loving one another. A man by the name of Wilbur Reese wrote a, a little poem that I think is probably true for many of us. And it, you will feel the, the gravity of this in your own heart. It's called $3 Worth of God. It goes like this. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul, mind you, or disturb my sleep but just enough to equal a warm cup of milk or a snooze in the sunshine. You see, I don't want enough of God to make me love a black man or pick beets with a migrant worker. I don't really want that. What I want is ecstasy, not transformation. What I want is the warmth of the womb, not really new birth. I want a pound of the flesh. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack, please. I would like to buy $3 worth of God. You say, um, part of you is like, that's terrible, Pastor Bill. And there's another part of you saying, I know what that feels like, Pastor Bill. You see, the natural tendency of all our hearts is we tend towards depravity and towards selfishness and towards racism. But that's why Jesus died and rose again, to deal with the messy, sinful hearts that we have in a moment-by-moment basis, learning to speak the gospel into the cold, dead, unreached parts of our hearts, evangelizing the unreached parts of our character, our attitude, and our actions. Pastor Bill, I have embraced Jesus with my life. Amen. I am so happy for you. That makes you my brother. That makes you my sister. But I'd like you to notice there are still many unevangelized aspects of our character, of our attitudes that show up in our actions. And so when we recognize that these things are there, I'm unloving, I'm selfish. I, I don't like certain kinds of people. I, I want what I want what I wanted. I don't want to do something for somebody. When we recognize that, don't just say, oh, that's just the way I am. That's unacceptable. Don't look at somebody else that you call uh, a believer and say, well, I'm better than they are. Yeah, God's going to accept them. They'll accept me. Well, God will accept you because of Jesus. But that's just the beginning of the process of making you like Jesus. And so we can't give up on this. So we need to recognize what God is doing in our lives. Our behavior betrays us. 
And then what we need to do is not ignore it or pass it by, but we need to repent. Here we go. This is how we met Jesus. This is how we grow in Jesus. We repent. And that process is simply this. We consider our hearts, what's going on in our minds. Then we ask ourselves, what is it I'm really believing in this moment? And then we get to the root of the issue. What has God done for me? And then who is God? Now let's back this up. Scripture, this is called the flow of Scripture, by the way. The flow of the gospel in the Scriptures. And what happens is this. The Bible always begins with God. Amen? The Bible always begins with who God is. And then what God has done for us. And then who I am in God because of what He's done for me. And then He calls me to do something. So the imperatives of Scripture, you shall not do this, our natural inclination is, who are you to tell me? But what if I said this? God, in love, sent His Son to die for you in love. And this is love, not that we love God, but He sent His Son to be a propitiation for our sins. This is love. And he now says, I embrace you as my child. And there's nothing you can ever do that would make me love you more. There's nothing you could ever do that would make me love you less. You're mine forever, perfectly like I love Jesus. Now, do this. I get it. You see, the imperatives of Scripture, the commands of Scripture, always flow out of who God is, what he has done, and who we are in him. Never the other way around. Because it's only then that it's effective in our lives. And so ultimately, uh, God is good. God is great. He is gracious. He is glorious. Look to the cross once again to see the reality of it in Jesus and enjoy the blessed relationship you have in him. And what happens is as you recognize this, repent, change your heart and mind, confess it for sin, and believe the truth. What happens is you can now rejoice and more and more aspects of your heart are being evangelized and you're becoming more like Jesus Christ. It is the gospel that saves us. It is the gospel that sanctifies us. And it is the gospel, the good news of Christ, that will ultimately see us home. That is the beauty of this thing called the gospel. All right. Now we're to the L. <laughs> Pastor Bill, hurry up. It's getting late. I know. A redeemed community by the grace of God. A, a exciting community as they learn the grace of God. An authentic community that was acting and living out the grace of God. And they were a loving community. It says this, and day by day, these people were deeply immersed in each other's lives. They were attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, and they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. So what we see in this community, this first church, is God's blessing. It was a loving community. It was a beautiful community. It was something that seemed so perfect and so blissful. But can I just say all that was about to change. Remember Acts chapter 1 and verse 8? You are to be my witnesses where? In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. They didn't want to leave Jerusalem. It was too sweet, man. We don't really care about those people over in, in, in Samaria, man. They're a bunch of half-breeds anyway. And so what God did was in Acts chapter 8, God brought persecution 
onto the church. Stephen was stoned to death and Saul was now hauling people off to jail. So the people scattered. But the gospel was so much a part of their being that everywhere they went they shared Christ. And so now this diaspora of Jews was reaching uh, Judea, Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. So what I want you to notice is this. It says they were attending the temple together. About the 3,000 of them were coming together in one location in the temple mount as, as one of the apostles would stand up and do some ex- exhortation or, or preaching. And it says they were breaking bread in their homes. The word homes there is the Greek word oikos. Now oikos, again, is like a little local church where people met in people's homes. When you got 3,000 people, you only have the Temple Mount to get them all together, but during the rest of the week, they were living in these oikoses, which are, are, are dwellings with extended family in them, faith family in them. You know, there were 30, 40, 50, 100 of them around Jerusalem? I don't know. But when persecution broke out, they could no longer meet at the temple, which meant these oikoses now became the default place of meeting. Please hear this. Over the next 270 years, it, were these, it was these smaller gathering places, these little house churches that ultimately won over the Roman Empire. Think about this. They had no budgets, they had no buildings, and they really had no paid staff. And on top of that, these people were forced to go underground into the catacombs. These people were being actively fed to the lions. They were the derision of the masses, and they were the prey of sport in the Colosseums. And they evangelized the Roman Empire. No building, no budget, no paid leaders. The very things we think we have, to, we have to have, right? We can't do ministry unless we get a nice building, and we get paid guys, and we get a budget, right? They didn't have any of that. And yet they reached their world for Jesus, and we're afraid to walk across the road to talk to our neighbor. What is it that they had that we don't have today? What is it that they had that we don't have today? What made them so dynamic We seem to be missing this dynamic in our experience. The only thing I know to say is this. All they had, all they had was Jesus. That's it. That's it. They didn't have all the other stuff. They didn't have all the accoutrements. They didn't have all the trappings. But all they had was Jesus. And Jesus was so real to them. Jesus was so ultimately tangible to them. He was the one who redeemed them. He was the one who excited them. He was the one who made them authentic with one another. He was the one who made them loving toward one another. They were more than just a blood-bought community. It was as if the very lifeblood of Jesus was coursing through their veins. They could not only articulate the gospel, but they actually had the good news of the gospel of God's grace in their hearts and in their minds and on their lips. And grace was not just some religious concept or theological idea, but it was something worth dying for. It was such a reality that it transformed everything about them. How they lived, how they saw, how they felt, how they interacted with people. The first church was so amazing because they knew the love of God. 
They grasped the love and the grace that God had for them in Jesus. And it changed their hearts and informed and enabled their love for each other, even for a lost and dying world to the point of their own death. I have no other explanation than that they had Jesus. And somebody has said, and I don't know this to be true yet in my own experience, but when all you have is Jesus, you discover he's all you need. He's all you need. They were Jesus freaks. Jesus freaks. That's what made them so powerful, so effective. It's because they knew Jesus and they had given their lives wholeheartedly to Jesus. And they lived out the gospel of Jesus and the grace of God. What about you? I'm going to end with this and uh, we'll pray together. He is more than you could ever need. He's more than the eye could see. I don't deserve his love, but he's always been there for me. You see, Jesus met me when I was at my lowest. And if you don't know Jesus, know this. He is the greatest example of generosity this world of greed has ever seen. And when Jesus hit the scene, he changed the scenery and met diversity with serenity. If you're looking for peace, he offers plenty. Jesus was and Jesus will forever be king. And when the angels sing, they sing of the grace that was displayed for sinners like me. I can't explain him and I can't describe him. And if I could, he wouldn't be Jesus because you can't explain eternity and you can't comprehend the galaxies. But it was the loving hands of Jesus who spun them into existence and created man knowing he would go to the cross to pay our sentence. There was a certificate of judgment with a period after the sentence and we were sentenced to death long before he said it is finished. He is a father to the orphan, a shelter for the homeless, a hiding place for the abused and an anchor for our storms. He stormed the gates of hell and came out on top and the power of his gospel cannot be stopped. Even when the world tries, they try a lot. He traded places with Barabbas and became the catalyst of missions across the world covering every portion of the atlas. If you're in need of rest, I know of a mattress. If you don't know Jesus, your future is tragic, but he gladly embraced tragedy so we could live in his presence of majesty. His presence is presence, and it's his presence that presents preciousness to a world of peasants. He is far from pretentious, but still loves those who are. He is the light of the world and hung the stars. He brings the dead to life and delivers life to the dead. He took a crown of thorns on his head so we could put crowns at his feet, and I I can't wait until I get to kiss his feet that were nailed to a cross for me and for you and for every person around the world. He loves the world and I love his word because the word became flesh and in his flesh he demonstrated the word to the world. He is an example to every boy and every girl. He is a lover of black people. He is a lover of white people. He is a lover of the unchurched and the assembly under the steeple. He doesn't see the believers failures but still takes time to celebrate their faithfulness. It's the power of the spirit that enables us and gives us boldness when the world labels us and if you want to label me please call me a Jesus freak if that freaks you out good because it's better to be good with God than to fight being misunderstood by a world that could never understand so let it be understood that I don't worship man we worship Jesus and although he doesn't need us he still sees us and pleads with us to run to the cross where he bled for us his heart bleeds for us his heart grieves for us but still graciously grants us a pardon for our treason in a season where the world tries to explain away the work of the spirit with human reasoning there is a reason they can't because the spirit is like the wind and the wind cannot be seen but loved is the one who believes without seeing the unseen I'm telling you today that Jesus is something he's something more 
He's something great. And if you want to know him, you don't have to wait. He stands at the narrow path with a key to the gate, and you only have to reach out and embrace his grace. I don't care who's president. I have a king who is always present. I don't care who holds musical celebrity. The voice of the Lord will always be the sweetest melody. I don't care who owns the riches of the globe. My Jesus holds more wealth than one ruby on his robe. I don't care who is the strongest or the fastest. Nothing matches the creator of the universe and his immortal, infinite status. I don't care about religious leaders who died and stayed dead. I'll only worship the one who conquered death and wears a crown on his head. His name is Jesus, and I'm telling you, he's something. He was faithful yesterday, and he is faithful today. I can feel his presence whenever I pray. And when the time comes for me to fade away, I'll remember the day I heard him say, My name is Jesus. And they discovered that all they needed was Jesus. Perhaps today we're trusting in many other things in our hearts and lives. We're looking at all the things that are going on around us and we're just frantic or don't know what to do or what about this, what about that. Let me just say Jesus. Jesus. Grace. The gospel. That is the answer to every problem and is the solution to every need. Jesus. We began by coming to the altar. We're going to end by coming to the cross together. I'm going to lead us in a word of prayer, uh, and we're going to go before the cross where righteousness and peace kissed, and our, our opportunity to be right with God was represented. So would you please join me as we go before the cross together? Heavenly Father, Thank you that we have that privilege to call you Father. We know that the only thing we bring to this relationship is our depravity. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that does good. There is none who is right before you. The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. How can we even understand it? So, Father, we bring to you our sinfulness. And you give to us Jesus. Thank you, Jesus Christ, for living the life we could not live. And dying the death we justly should have died. Thank you for your forgiveness and your righteousness that you extend to us as we get on our knees in humility and turn to you and embrace you with our lives. Father, for some people right now, this would be the first time they've ever considered doing such a thing, and I pray right now they will. But others of us, Father, who have met you long ago need to come back to this place of repentance and faith every day. We carry so much garbage with us. I pray right now that we would experience a fresh breath of grace in our lives, knowing there's nothing we can do to deserve it. But all we can simply say is thank you. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you have done. Thank you that you call us your children. Now please help us to get up from this place today and live for Jesus, I pray. It's in his name that I come before you, Father. And all God's people said, God bless you. Have a great, great week in Jesus.